The reading this morning is from 1 John 1, um, verse 5, finishing at chapter 2 and verse 2. Walking in the light. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defence. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we stand, let's pray. Lord God, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. The unfolding of your words gives understanding to the simple. It gives light to us. And so we pray that you would open the scriptures to us now, that we may walk in the light of the word of life. For we ask it in his, Jesus' name. Amen. Now do sit down. God is love. It's one of the best known uh, texts in the whole of Christian scripture and glorious that that should be the case. 1 John 4 verse 16. And I wonder how many people know that it comes from a New Testament letter with a second God is statement. In fact, God leads off with it in the body of his letter and the passage we're looking at this morning. And I would encourage you to have the scriptures open to the passage Caroline read for us, page 1225, 1 John 1, verse 5, God is light. If you're joining us this morning for the first time, already said welcome to you, and that's still true. You're joining us in week two of what we hope will be a series over the next few months Uh, looking at the whole of John's first letter, a letter to a church uh, that is confused and struggling with doubt. Uh, It's been disoriented by the experiences they've had, and in a way that, as we thought last week, may parallel some of our present experience, living in these disorienting days and always wondering if what we've heard about Jesus is really true, when there are so many who seem to doubt or deny it, and walk away altogether. And John writes this letter to a church like that, that we might know the truth of what we believe about Jesus. And last week, John kicked off by establishing his credentials. 
He was an eyewitness of the Lord Jesus. He heard him. He saw him. He touched him. And now he, with all the apostles, proclaims that word of life now given to the world until the end time given to us in the deposit of their writings, the word of life in the scriptures. So verse 5, what is this message we have heard from him, that is from Jesus, the word of life, and now declare to you? What is the answer to your doubts and divisions and disorientation? Well, it starts here. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. What does John mean by saying God is light and in him there is no darkness at all? Well, as we look ahead into our passage, we learn what it means by way of contrast. The light in verse 5 is contrasted to darkness. And in verse 6, where it's expanded, walking in the darkness is to lie and not to live by the truth. In other words, light stands for truth, the opposite of the lie. It looks back to the light of revelation, the opening verses of John's letter that we considered last week. Uh, We use the phrase, don't we, of being left in the dark when somebody knows something but they don't tell us and it would have been really helpful if they had done. Well, God has not left us in the dark about who he is and about how we might know him and about how we might receive life in all its fullness in his name. He's not left us in the dark uh, because Jesus Christ, in Jesus, life has appeared, life and light to all he brings, as we sing in the Christmas carol. And God willing, we will be able to sing those with full gusto come this Christmas. At least we hope and pray for that. In Jesus, life has appeared to us as God became one of us, as he took flesh and came full of grace and truth. And he was seen and then proclaimed by human beings just like us so that we might walk in this light as well, that we might receive this life ourselves. Because even though our physical eyes have not seen Jesus Christ in the flesh, the eyes of our heart may see him perfectly because the word of life that has been given to us by the apostles and that we have here in our Bibles whether they're written or on tablets, uh, uh, in whatever form, we pray that they would come alive to us, that they might be written on our hearts as we come to see Jesus, full of grace and truth for ourselves. We have the word of life. And as we receive and believe and obey the written word of life, so we walk in the light because we know the word of life in person. That is Jesus. And we come to know God as our father, as our friend, and as our future hope. The other contrast in this section is striking. You see, light is truth, light is revelation, light is God speaking to us. But light is also here standing for God's holiness. Walking in the darkness is not just ignorance of God, even willful ignorance. It is rebellion. Now, sometimes people say that we at St. John's focus too much on sin. Well, you must make your own call about that. I hope it's not true. My aim in all our teaching is not only to teach what the Bible says, but to reflect the Bible's own emphasis. 
seeking to avoid both hobby horses and anything people might feel is off limits or difficult for us to hear. Like Paul to the elders of Ephesus, my aim and those of all those who stand here is to preach to you the whole counsel of God, the glorious promises and the difficult truths as well. But it would be difficult to preach this passage without focusing on sin. Uh, I wonder if you noticed as Caroline was reading it, uh, John mentions uh, sin nine times in our English translation of these eight verses from chapter 1, verse 5, through to chapter 2, verse 2. It's actually eight in the original uh, Greek. If you use the same word eight times in eight sentences, it's fair to say that you have one overriding point that you're trying to make to the person you're speaking to. This is a passage all about sin. Darkness refers to our rebellion against the holy light of God. God is light, only light, no darkness. He is pure holiness and life eternal. The contrast is stark. God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. We are dark, and in our natural state, there is no saving light in us at all. John, uh, Jesus rather puts it with piercing clarity. Do you remember the conversation he has with Nicodemus? John tells us about it in chapter 3 of his gospel. And he says to Nicodemus, light has come into the world. Nicodemus, you're talking to him. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light. And why? Jesus says, because their deeds were evil. Darkness is evil. Darkness is rebellion. Darkness is the rejection of God that is instinctive to every rebellious and fallen creature, that is, to every one of us. Paul speaks in the same way. He writes of the universal sinfulness of human beings, that our foolish hearts were darkened. Uh, Friends, I don't want you to be discouraged or despairing. Remember, John has just told us in verse 4 that the object of his writing this letter is that we might know joy, the joy of fellowship with one another as we know God together. And that is why John holds together these two statements in his letter. God is light, and that means that sin is a problem, a devastating, deadly problem that we are entirely unable to resolve by ourselves. But God is love, and that means sin has a solution. God provided in the cross of Jesus, and of that he will speak in these verses this morning. God is light. Sin is a problem. God is love. Sin has a solution. This is the gospel. God is light. God is love. Together they come in Jesus. Well, only once we feel the awful darkness of being sinners in the hands of an angry God. Do we begin to grasp the dimensions of the God who has so loved us as to rescue us from our sin? to rescue us from his judgment upon our sin. It's only once we feel the weight of the darkness, that's what John is doing in these verses this morning, that we're ready to hear the message in Isaiah's words of the coming Son of God, that the people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Friends, don't be afraid of the darkness, because it will only show the light in all its glory. And in Jesus, it will, we will be set free from that darkness and it will no longer condemn us or keep us away from the light 
of God. But we must be clear, there's a vast chasm that is unbridgeable from our side between the God who is light and life and we who walk in darkness and inherit death. And the gospel is good news precisely because it is God's answer to the human predicament. It reveals how God comes in Jesus Christ to flood our darkness with his light, to give his own life, to bear our sins on the cross, that we might receive everlasting life from God as we put our trust in him. The trouble is these darkened hearts of ours are proud, and rather than humbly receiving the diagnosis that God is light and I am darkness, we bring in the religious spin doctors. Our own hearts are programmed that way, and uh, those around us will only encourage us in that, in our natural state. Uh, And so what John does in these verses uh, is he attacks three cherished lies by which we seek to avoid this diagnosis, that my heart is darkness, and only the light of God can and will flood it with forgiveness and new life in Jesus. So verses 6 to 10 of uh, chapter 1, the end of this first chapter, uh, John lays out for this these three excuses that are just as typical today as they were 2,000 years ago when he wrote the letter. First, verse 6, some people claim that sin doesn't really matter. Uh, Some are claiming to have fellowship with him, that is, uh, with God and with Jesus, and yet they're walking, John says, in the darkness. In other words, these are people who live by this sort of creed. Yes, I'm a Christian, but no, it hasn't got anything to do with the way I live my life. I love the idea of being God's child. The promises sound wonderful. In other words, perhaps there is faith, but there is no repentance. And there are people who believe that, who will maybe not articulate it explicitly, but who will live as though moral failure has zero impact on my relationship with God. Now, the cause of that was a little different in John's day compared to ours. The false teachers in his day, that view came from the idea that the body was a a mere vehicle for the spirit and something uh, unworthy that would eventually be left behind. And since the spirit was what mattered, it didn't therefore really matter what you did with your body. Now, the resurrection of the body of Jesus and of us puts paid to that nonsense. And few today would justify it in exactly the same way. But it is still a hugely common view. If I choose to identify as a Christian, then I will live as I please. And no one may tell me any different. Well, John says that mindset that says you can use the language of Christianity and talk about faith while denying the need for repentance is a lie. And that the claim to be a Christian without any corresponding commitment to begin to actually follow Jesus is to live a life actively denying Jesus who is the truth. It's a lie, he says. Not a spoken lie, but a lived out lie. Sin is always a barrier to fellowship with God. And if such a barrier is not even acknowledged, then it most certainly still exists. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not live by the truth. But there's another way, he says. Don't deny your sin. Don't think perhaps if we never talked about sin, then maybe it would all just go away and we'd be okay. 
I don't deny it, he says, confess it. Verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Now, by walking in the light, John uh, clearly cannot mean achieving God's moral, holy perfection. He's just telling us in this section that we're all sinners. What he means is that if we walk in the light, then we are consciously receiving the word of God, humbling ourselves before it. And as we hear the word of God, what should our response be if not to fall on our faces and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner? Whether we hear the word of God as it's read and preached or whether we come before the word of life in person, the reaction in scripture is always the same, to fall down and confess, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips and I come from a people of unclean lips. If the word of God is active in your life, then the evidence will be repentance. The evidence will be humility and confession and that's what it means to walk in the light. To let the light of God actually shine upon your heart and produce in there repentance and humility and contrition. Now the person who says no one has the right to tell me how to live or to challenge my claim uh, to be religious and to be a Christian on my own terms. No, John says that's, that's just a lie. Don't be deceived by that. You either ignore sin and live in the lie or you acknowledge it. And come to Jesus who purifies us from all sin. You make a choice. And you must make that choice for yourself. And look at the result when we do that. It's unexpected. I would have thought John would say, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with him. Fellowship with God. But he doesn't. That's true. But it's not what he says here. He says the evidence of true repentance is fellowship with one another in the Christian community. Actually, when we think that through, it's not that surprising. When someone wants to call themselves a Christian while being determined with a high hand, as we might say, to uh, live as they please and to ignore uh, what God's word clearly teaches about how we must live as followers of Jesus, it won't be long before it becomes impossible for that person to continue in fellowship with other Christians. Now, some doubtless might be wrongly judgmental, but the reality is that any truly loving sister or brother who sees another Christian defiantly rejecting the word of God must, in the end, talk to them about that, encourage them to repent of their sins. And if they're unwilling to hear it, uh, if the response from the one walking in darkness is not repentance, well, then they'll walk away because they won't want to go every week and hear that they need to repent. Walking in the light means being united together. Not in our goodness, do you see? It's not about that. It's being united in our brokenness. It's being united in the fact that every single one of us acknowledges that we and all of the rest of us are sinners who only find our unity at the cross of Jesus because our story, though as unique as every one of us, is one. We have life only because the blood of Jesus purifies us from our sins. And when we refuse to turn from those sins, when we justify them, it is fellowship with one another as well as with God that is broken. So you see, it's the renewal of repentance that needs the renewal of fellowship with each other as well as with God. 
I will think about more of what John means by Jesus' blood when we come to 2.2. But second excuse, some claim that only other people's sin matters. Verse 8. Now, these people are claiming to be without sin. That is, they don't deny that sin exists and that it's awful. Uh, And neither do they, they deny that if sin were present in our lives, it would be a barrier to knowing God as he really is. These are the people who say that sin is only other people's problem. That I myself have achieved a level of uh, um, sanctification so that sin is no longer a problem to me. Now again, John's opponents would have uh, justified that rather differently. They were claiming to have found a, a religious secret that perfected them and put them beyond the realm of sin. And there have been movements like that in the history of the church. But the reality is, even without a fully formed uh, movement, people do say things like this. If I had a pound for every time someone had said to me as I was preparing for a funeral, he never did anyone any harm, and the unspoken assumption that that'll be good enough to see him right with God. We see that this is the instinctive reaction of all our hearts. Perhaps we see it amongst ourselves, too. Uh, the one who looks down on another because the consequence of their sin is obvious, but ours is clothed in middle-class respectability. The unmarried pregnant woman cannot hide the reality of sin. The gossip leaves no visible mark. But unforgiven fornication and unforgiven gossip are both expressions of darkness. Both arouse the wrath of God. Both equally qualify you for hell. So let's have no language about there being gradations of sin, still less that I am without sin, though you, you have your problems and everyone can see that. The one who says sin is dreadful and really means other people's sin is more dreadful than mine. I am a good person or at least better than you, even if they never quite articulate it so boldly. What does John say? We deceive ourselves. Deceive only ourselves. God is not mocked. He sees your heart. He sees my heart. He sees your entire history, every word spoken, every action committed, as though it is present before him right now. Do you really want to say, I am without sin? What a deception that would be. What a foolishness that would be. No, uh, the reality is that uh, we are sinners. We have sinned. That's why we confess our sins every time we come together as God's people. Because the ready and regular admission of the fact uh, is the acknowledgement of what is true until the day comes when we're taken home and truly perfected in glory. Now, not denial, verse 9, but confession. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Our instinct is always to run away from the fact of sin, make excuses for it. The devil made me do it. My friend made me do it. My genetic makeup made me do it. My sex drive made me do it. My upbringing made me do it. Perhaps there are mitigating circumstances. Perhaps others were involved. But in the end... The only valid response to my sin is my confession. I did it. The buck stops here. I am guilty. Woe is me. I despise myself and repent. Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. Out of the proud human heart, that is 
impossibly humiliating. But John knows that this is the way to discover the faithfulness of God, to discover the purifying work of the gospel in our lives. This is the way to find the liberty of forgiveness. This is the pathway to life and real joy to confess our sins, not just formally and liturgically every week as we do, but to do it from our hearts every moment of our lives. It's interesting that John says God is both faithful and just. That's a tension. We'll see the resolution in a moment. But God declares that he does not leave the guilty unpunished. So we confess our sins, but how can he also demonstrate justice as well as faithfulness? Well, again, because we need God as love alongside God as light. We'll see how he resolves that when we come to the start of chapter 2. But the third excuse before we get there. Some people claim that God, in his word, is impertinent in defining sin. Some are claiming, verse 10, that they have not sinned. And John's explanation of that is revealing. Uh, He says that those who do this make God out to be a liar and allow no place for his word in their lives. Now what seems to be happening with this third group is this. Uh, Here are people doing things that the scriptures teach us are sinful. They are wrong in the sight of God. Uh, And yet in full knowledge of that, these are people who are claiming we have not sinned. In other words, they're claiming a, a superior insight over and above the scriptures that enable them to define what is sinful and what is not. It's tragic and wicked, isn't it? It fails to remember even the first story of a human rebellion in the Bible. Did God really say? Surely we have the right to define uh, what is good and evil, the uh, very essence of the first and cardinal sin. You see, these are people who are saying, well, yes, I know that Isaiah says that or you say that, John, but, but frankly, we've got better insights from our culture 2,000 years later, the argument is only louder and stronger. These apostles, 2,000 years ago, what did they know of human psychology or the development of science? And look at the way the culture around us celebrates as good and life-affirming those things which God's word says are sinful and wicked. Surely we must say, mustn't we, that we've moved on from these old-fashioned insights and we can say we have not sinned even though God's word says that certain things are wrong and sinful. It's not a new excuse. It may come with fresh power uh, in the modern church, but it's not new. It's as old as John. Indeed, it's as old as the devil himself, the father of lies. Now, if we claim the right to redefine what sin is, well, that may make us very attractive and popular uh, in our current culture. John's diagnosis is that we make God out to be a liar by thinking that we have the right to redefine his word. Do you want to stand before God on the day of judgment and find that he calls you a liar because you thought fit to set aside his word and redefine it with your own standards of right and wrong? There's no hope in that. Only the pathway to destruction. As I say, these excuses are true of all of us in our natural and arrogant selves. We, we pretend sin doesn't matter uh, because we'd rather just uh, talk about faith and leave the unpleasant, deep work of repentance 
We condemn others while excusing ourselves because some people's sin, frankly, is really obvious and we're good and respectable people. Or it would be so much easier if we could just redefine just a few things. We all know what they are, don't we, uh, in our current culture. Not to be sinful anymore, even though God's word is so clear. Because it would make life so much easier, being a Christian in the modern world, if we could just shave off one or two bits. Not all ten commandments, just one or two make it a little easier for us to make our pitch in the marketplace today. All of that is to live in darkness. All of that is to make God out to be a liar. And what must we do? We must confess our sins. We must confess the sins that God says are sins. And we must come to Jesus who alone can purify us from all sins. And the reason we confess our sins every week, the reason we should confess our sins every day, is because God is merciful and loving. And there is no limit to the number of times God will hear us. Even when it's the Lord, it's me again, and Lord, it's that again, prayer. There are things we will wrestle with until our dying day, and he will always forgive us. He will always absolve us from the punishment we deserve. He will always, as we walk in the light of confession and humility, uh, take away from us the ultimate darkness that our sins deserve. And so we come to the final two verses, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. John writes these things. He says, my dear children, I, I write these to you so that you will not sin. He wants to encourage us to walk in the path of godliness and obedience uh, to the Lord Jesus. But if anybody does sin, and by that, of course, he means himself and us. Because the whole point of the verses he's just written uh, is that any claim to not sin is a lie and deceives only ourselves. So don't sin. But when you do, well, and we sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. What a magnificence there is here of the grace of God, sufficient to meet and overwhelm any sin and darkness with light and forgiveness. He's been building up to this. Chapter 1, verse 7, the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. Chapter 1, verse 9, God is faithful and just in forgiving our sins. Here in chapter 2, verse 2, those truths are brought together. How can a holy God, a just God, Forgive sinners. And the answer is the cross of Jesus. You see, the response of a holy God to sin is wrath. When we sin, we provoke God to anger. It is a righteous anger. It's not like my anger, unpredictable and provoked by injured pride or just annoyance or any of those other things that make us angry. God's wrath is personal and pure. And utterly consistent with his character. Darkness has no place in his light and must be expelled. And so unless his wrath against us who are darkness is averted or appeased, well then pure justice demands that the sinner be destroyed. You often think, don't we, and rightly so, as sin as something that causes a problem for us. Our sins have cut us off from God and made a ruin of our life. That's true. But more profoundly, sin causes a problem to God. His wrath has cut him off from us in holy anger 
and just condemnation. That's why chapter 2, verse 2 of 1 John is one of those wonderful promises. Memorize it. Engrave it on your heart. In his death, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That translation is a little too colorless. The older and more accurate translation, which we have in the authorized version in the prayer book, is propitiation. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. I know it's an old word. And my electronic thesaurus gave up. But sometimes you just have to have the word when there's no other word that will do. And you've got to learn it, even how to spell it, and learn it what it means because it's precious and it's powerful. Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins. And to propitiate someone is to turn their anger away and to make them favorable towards us again. In fact, the uh, translation we use has the expansion of it, the explanation in the footnote, really helpfully. Uh, Jesus is the one who turns aside God's wrath in his death on the cross in our place. So here is God's justice, his wrath against our sin, his anger against the sins even of the whole world is absorbed, averted, appeased in the death of Jesus. Not that all people everywhere are automatically forgiven, but that the achievement of the cross extends to those whom God is calling across every nation and all through time. Some people object to this doctrine today, of course, on the grounds that it seems to set an angry God against his helpless son. But the phrase John uses, unusual in his writing, seems deliberately designed to counter that. The righteous one is an Old Testament title for God, for the Lord, the creator. And Jesus, of course, is the word who was God, who took flesh and made his dwelling among us. God's wrath is averted by God in the flesh. Not the father casting all on an unwilling son, but rather God coming in person, bearing his own judgment, not on some unwilling third party. We might never have to face it ourselves, and we might know only the forgiveness and acceptance of God in Jesus. Sin is a problem for him, and the solution is entirely provided by him. And even now, even today, Jesus speaks to the Father in our defense. He's doing it today for you, right now, in the courts of heaven. Continually applying, as it were, that finished work of his wrath-bearing death to his repentant people. That we might be purified, forgiven, and united humbly around the cross where that price was paid. And so the justice of God is not compromised. He doesn't acquit the guilty. He bears the guilt in his own body. The blood of Jesus purifies us because his justice is seen in the cross where he forgives us. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. And here is freedom. Here is the gospel. Jesus, as our articles put it, truly suffered, was crucified, dead and buried to reconcile his father to us so that we can come as forgiven children into the courts of our heavenly father. Our sins never more held against us. The price truly and fully paid That's how we know we're really forgiven. Not the quality of our repentance or the maturity of our faith or the depth of our love for him. All of those things ebb and flow, don't they, over a lifetime of Christian discipleship. But simply because in his death, everything was done fully and forever that would keep the God who is light 
from knowing us whose hearts are turned to the darkness. Now, friends, can you see what a foolishness it is to refuse to confess your sins to such a God as this? Or what stupidity to make excuses for them? Or what dangerous arrogance it is to imagine we can determine what needs forgiving and what doesn't? God is light. As we confess our sins and trust in Jesus' propitiatory death for our forgiveness, so we walk in the light. It's not a light of our own. It's a light given to us that we're drawn into. And here is a message for a dark world called up in sin and spin. Yes, God is love, but do you really know what that means? God is light. Will you come and confess your sins and discover that the love of God for you is far more amazing than anything you ever thought before you realize that the God who is love is also the God who is light. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, word of life, word of the Father, who comes full of grace and truth. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would cause us to examine our hearts, our consciences, and where there is repenting to do, you would enable us to do it. And where there is fear of your rejection, the sufficiency and finality of your cross would speak a word of peace and assurance to us. We may know that we are one family in you, around your cross, humbled and exalted, walking in your light. Amen.